Our speaker tonight is military historian Derek Beck, who began his career in the U.S. Air Force. He earned a Master of Science degree at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he also fell in love with Boston's revolutionary past. Mr. Beck is a writer and filmmaker, and now serves in the U.S. Air Force Reserves and presently holds the rank of major. His writing has appeared in multiple history journals and has been cited by the Boston Globe, among other publications. He is also a frequent contributor to the online Journal of the American Revolution. Mr. Beck's book, Igniting the American Revolution, 1773 to 1775, received an honorable mention for best new U.S. revolutionary history book by the Francis Tavern Museum in April of this year. His second book in the series, The War Before Independence, 1775 to 1776, was released just last month. Tonight, Mr. Beck will speak about the events leading up to the Revolutionary War here in Boston and their impact on our country's history. Please join me in welcoming Derek Beck to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you all for coming out tonight. It's an honor to be here, and I appreciate the staff for helping out set this event up. As uh, introduced, I have two books. Both are kind of, they stand alone, but they also, the second really flows from the first, so it's a sequel of sorts. And uh, I have a, I'm sort of tempted to write the entire series. Nobody's ever write, written an entire series of books covering the entire revolution, to my knowledge, anyway. And, uh, and it's a big undertaking, so we'll see what happens. But, so why history? I think it's because it's exciting. Mel Gibson kind of displays that with that uh, furious face right there. But I think history should be exciting, and I think a lot of people that don't think history is exciting or found it boring in elementary schools because they learned it the wrong way, and maybe they read the wrong books, and there are more than a few books out there that sort of get too far into the weeds and, uh, and don't really capture the drama. There's literally, if you go back 241 years ago, there's literally people running nearby this place shooting at each other. And if you were there, your heart would be racing. There would definitely be some excitement. And yet, a lot of times when history is presented, it can be kind of boring and monotone. And it shouldn't be that way. So, uh, kind of got introduced, but one of the big takeaways is that when I was in Los Angeles Air Force Base, active duty Air Force, I became interested in filmmaking, and I then needed material to do short films initially, and, and some sort of storytelling kind of thing is where I started to branch off. So I started in directing and this sort of thing, short films, and then I started focusing on writing because I needed material to shoot. Fast forward to, I come to MIT, I discover my specific interest in revolutionary history, and I think that... Paul Revere's Ride should be a great movie, and the start of the revolution should be a great movie. So I actually, a few years later after the Air Force, I, um, I, I basically write a long film script about the start of the revolution. It, is, it gets into some details that I thought was not appropriate for a film, and I was reading some of the source material in places like this archive that has all this stuff that some of which has never been published, 
And I thought, well, maybe I should just write the book. And so that's what happened. And it then became two books. But the ultimate goal now is mini-series. If you're familiar with Band of Brothers, I'd like to do something like Band of Brothers set in the revolution. However, it's taken me eight years to get to this point. And it might take me another eight years. But that would be the 250th anniversary. Maybe I'll be just in time with the start of the revolution. So going back to why history, though, there's the academic answers, our roots. Obviously, understanding our roots, cultural awareness comes from understanding where we came from. And then the obvious answer that hopefully we don't make the same mistakes twice. Yet, of course, we do frequently. And, um, but I think, again, the reason is to study history is because it is exciting. And I have a couple different ways that I achieve that. One is I try to focus on characters. So I refer to them as characters from my film background. But people like Dr. Joseph Warren is a focus of my first book. And outside of Boston, even sometimes inside of Boston, he is not well known. I'll talk about him in a moment. But um, he's like one of the key focuses of the early part of the revolution here in Boston. And I try to look at people as real people. So these are imperfect people. George Washington is not a superhero. And uh, you know, if you read his original letters, you see his own self-doubts. And you get to understand and appreciate that this guy is a real person. And you can start to put yourself in these positions. One of the other things I focus on is uh, I don't use the word patriot unless it's in a quotation. And the reason is a patriot is a lover of one's country. So the British loved their empire as well. And I deliberately try to paint this in an unbiased way as if you're a journalist there in the events and you are going to make your own decisions. Sometimes the good guys are the bad guys and sometimes the bad guys are the good guys, depending on the situation. And I'm just trying to paint the events in an honest way. And then finally, I mentioned some books have so much detail. Well, a lot of that detail you have to have somewhere to defend your, for example, there may be a gap in information and you have to theorize what happened between this event, which we know about, and this event. And so how do you fill that in? Well, you have to paint some of that information with circumstantial evidence, and then you have to defend that. But that bogs down a story. So what I've done is I've moved it to the end, and so the books have a larger endnotes and appendices section than most history books. But it's not meant for the common reader, and, uh, and as a result, the body of the book flows much more readily, and, and it's been described in reviews as it reads like an action novel. And it should, because if you're going to, if you could be there for the real events, you wouldn't be seeing all these debates on exactly what happened. You would just see it and you would enjoy the experience if you could go back in time and watch it. And I think that's how the book and ultimately potentially a mini-series should play out. So the first book starts with the Boston Tea Party because I think that's really where the action begins. And um, there's debate on exactly when the American Revolution begins. Some would argue the French and Indian War. Of course, that's where the financial hardship began and the taxations that kind of went through different cycles through Boston and the colonies afterwards. But there was a lull in violence and protests in the 1770, 71, 72. Basically, after the Boston Massacre, the British that are in Boston are ejected from Boston. They go to Castle Island. And so there's no British troops stationed in Boston, and the Boston Tea Party sort of reinvigorates the problems that are occurring in Boston. The ultimate result of the Boston Tea Party, which is at the end of 1773, 
is that the uh, that the British Parliament is determined to coerce Boston into paying restitution for that tea. And the key of the several coercive acts that are passed, we called them intolerable acts on the American side later, is the Boston Port Act. It closes the Port of Boston. So basically, Parliament's brilliant idea was if we put a bunch of dock workers out of work, create a local depression, economic depression, then surely they'll pay back for this tea. Well, that, that was just ob obsessive, if, if uh, not oppressive. And uh, the Massachusetts Government Act very much restricted freedom of assembly and the uh, local government's ability, the uh, local population's ability to establish local government and elect some of their officials. And, uh, and then more, perhaps most importantly, the royal governor, who is a civilian up until this point, is replaced with General Thomas Gage, now the, a military governor, who's also the commander of all British forces in North America. So by the end of 1774, also many troops come to Boston, again for the first time since the uh, Boston Massacre in 1770, and by the end of 74, one in five souls in Boston is a soldier officer. So there are a bunch of dock workers out of work, and you have a lot of soldiers now, and they really don't have a whole lot to do. Boston is a small peninsula. It is not like it is today where landfill in the 1800s has created places like the Back Bay. So it's a tight area for that many soldiers with that many people out of work, and there's a lot of anger. And so, of course, you're going to end up with street brawls and fighting and, uh, and escalations of different sorts occurred from 74 through the early 1775, both in Boston and out of Boston in the surrounding areas. And the ultimate result is that General Gage determines that the, he needs to take a preemptive measure against what he's learned are, are war stores that the American militia have collected in Concord. This is where I introduce uh, Dr. Joseph Warren. He is, in my mind, the leader of the revolution at this point. So in April of 1775, John Adams is south, and Samuel Adams and John Hancock are in Lexington hiding out because their fear is that they may be arrested by Gage. And ultimately, all three of those gentlemen will head off to Philadelphia for the Continental Congress. But Dr. Joseph Warren is in Boston at this point, and he is the de facto leader of the revolution. There are technically some militia leadership uh, but he's really the guy that's running things. He's the guy on the ground making the decisions, especially after the first shots on April 19th, 1775. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, but it's necessary to bring up Mrs. Gage at this point because there is a myth that's been perpetuated long time, for a very long time here, and that is that she was a secret informant to Dr. Joseph Warren that the British were preparing to march out to Concord. The fact is, there's no evidence to support it. There's plenty of evidence, though, where, again, Boston is a small, confined area. All these people are out of work, and they're passing intel, intelligence, to Warren and through Paul Revere in many cases. And some of that intelligence is that the best troops have been taken off their normal exercises as if being prepared for some sort of new uh, event. And even some of the British soldiers were uh, writing in their diaries saying that, yes, this is definitely, we're going to march somewhere. We're not sure what the plan is. But meanwhile, the Royal Navy stopped 
fixing their warships and started repairing their rowboats, and then they put them all behind the Somerset, right on Charles River off of Boston Common. So it wasn't, it didn't take a genius, although Dr. Warren may have been a genius, but it didn't take a genius to figure out that something was up. So as a result, Warren sends the man on the left, William Dawes, as a precaution to Lexington to alert Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Later on, there's evidence to suggest that Warren himself saw the British mustering on Boston Common before getting into these rowboats and crossing to Cambridge and beginning their march to Concord. And once he confirmed that this was indeed happening, he sent the man on the right, which I'm sure everyone recognizes as the famous actor Jack Black. <laughs> I think they look pretty similar, but you can make... And clearly, Jack Black has uh, been told this, which is why he's posing in that way. Paul Revere's ride, basically, Paul Revere and William Dawes do meet up in Lexington, and then they are sent onward to Concord to raise the militia ahead of the British march. What does Paul Revere say? A lot of people, a lot of books would say it's uh, the British are coming. So this doesn't make any sense. If I yell at your door in the middle of the night, the Americans are coming, the Americans are coming. If you grab your musket, you're going to probably aim it at me because I make no sense and I'm crazy and I'm at your door and it doesn't make any sense. These guys, all these people out here are British. They're British Americans and the big issue at this point is not really taxation, not really. It's about being treated as a true British citizen, to be treated as if you're a Briton in Britain. They want more recognition as British. They love being British. They are thankful that they're not French. And they are, they really just want to be treated as if true British people. And they love their king. They just have a lot of problem with parliament and the ministry, and they assume that the ministry is duping the king. So he did not say the British are coming. He probably said something like the regulars, referring to the regular army versus the militia, or the red coats are coming, or as it's shown in the reenactments in Lexington every year, I think they say the uh, regulars are turning out. Any one of those, but definitely not the British are coming. It made no sense. So the British do come. On their way to Concord, they encounter the Lexington Minutemen Company. There was not meant to be a confrontation there. The Lexington Minutemen are on the green. The road passes to the south, but the lead companies of the British meet them on the green and there's a confrontation and the controversy this is where the first shot happens and there's a big controversy about where that shot came from and who shot first and who shot first is very important so the controversy who shot first so if you're familiar with star wars 1977 han solo shoots the bounty hunter on the right first and the bounty hunter actually never shoots in the 1990s, George Lucas created a special edition where he digitally altered it and Han is reacting after the bounty hunter shoots, Han shoots second. And why did George Lucas do this? The reason is because Han Solo, he wanted Han Solo to have this moral authority. It is part of the character that he wanted to establish. And the parallel I'm making here is that for the Americans, this moral authority who shot first was also vitally important, especially in the coming propaganda war. So there is no definitive answer on who shot first, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. 
And there's the green there on the right, and this is where the British met the uh, Lexington Minutemen Company. But one of the things we do know is that east of the green, before the British arrived at Lexington Center, is that there was one attempt by one American to shoot on the British, but the gun misfired. So there was at least one American that attempted to fire first. Meanwhile, we have the British reports, and we have some interesting uh, comparisons we can make with the British reports. They are accurate as far as we can tell because they agree with the American reports for the rest of the day. For example, later at the skirmish at Concord Bridge, the British acknowledged that some of their men fired first and then a volley came from the British side and it was not ordered. So they admit this freely and these reports, the British reports are all internal reports to their commander and also to their own diaries. So they had no agenda, no propaganda intent with that. They claim at Lexington that there was a shot around Buckman Tavern. Now, on the American side, the, uh, again, they had this propaganda intent. They were taking these statements immediately after the battle and rushing them across the Atlantic to get in British newspapers before the British reports even get there so that they can sway public opinion in London. And the, some of these statements imply that the Americans never even fired at all, although we know that there was an injury, at least one uh, soldier on the British side and one horse was also grazed. So did the Americans lie? The answer is no because they were very specific. The Lexington Minutemen Company did not fire first and in fact the uh, the British don't claim that either. But in 1825 one of the very participants later, 50 years later, when no longer does it matter this propaganda war, only then is the first American statement that, yeah, there was a shot by Buckman Tavern. I saw it. And then the guy ran around the front and he shot again. So now we have some confirmation that there was a shot at Buckman Tavern. And the British were claiming that from the beginning. But they, again, these were internal reports. So do we know for sure? And did, while the Americans were hanging out at Buckman Tavern, hours before the British arrived, did alcohol play a role? We don't know the answers to any of these questions. But the reality is that it doesn't matter, really. It's an academic, because the first shot happened and the war was effectively begun. Although it could have yet been averted, probably, but then events at Concord, which is the next location, is uh, it really set in motion. And then the British are forced to march back through a ambush after ambush all the way to Lexington. This original expeditionary force is almost it's really uh, harassed and they had suffered huge casualties, but they're almost out of ammunition as well. But when they get to Lexington, they are relieved to discover a new reinforcement of British there awaiting them. And this British force envelops them and basically helps march them back through the worst fighting of the day, the Battle of Monotomy, which is now Arlington. And this is, by the way, the reason why I call it the Battle of the 19th of April, because the worst fighting is here and yet, a lot of books call it the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which is actually not where the worst of the fighting was. So I think it doesn't do justice to this battle. So this is really a running battle, and each of these events is sort of a skirmish. But then uh, the British ultimately go to Charlestown to the north and then by boat back into Boston. The ultimate result is that they are surrounded in a siege. And I want to talk briefly about... There's, so when I learned in elementary school that the Americans... Uh, were sort of brilliant by fighting this guerrilla-style 
and uh, or Indian style fighting, and that the British were stupid by marching in column and line formation. And meanwhile, I also learned that the British were the greatest army in the world and the Americans somehow defeated the greatest army in the world. It didn't make sense to me. How can the British be both stupid and the greatest army in the world? It just doesn't make sense to me. So as I started to do these books, I really tried to give balance to the British side as well. And, and their decision making is logical if you understand where they're coming from. So this is a, a shot from Black Hawk Down, but it represents the Battle of Mogadishu in 1993. And the U.S. Army today, depending on the terrain, would be in column formation because it is the fastest way through an area. And in the case of the British, they're coming back to Boston. They want to get as quickly back as possible. So they're not going to go through the farms and over the fences and, and through the trees. However, they are surrounded by and aided by flankers. And so they're sending light infantry. These are guys that are basically the lightest, fastest guys. And, uh, and they actually even have their uniforms cut in ways to make it more efficient to run. And they're going from house to house and around trees and rooting out American snipers. So it's a myth that the British are simply in column formation. And more interestingly, too, is that a lot of the fighting style that the Americans learned was not really from the Indians, but alongside the British in the French and Indian War of only a decade earlier because the Americans were the reserve force for the British in the French and Indian War. So the British knew how to fight this way, and it just depended on the train and the situation whether they used those tactics or not. The ultimate result of the Battle of April 19th is that the, Boston, that the British are besieged in Boston. New officers and troops arrive, and the, uh, one of those is General William Howe. So General Howe has this plan. He's going to bust the siege of Boston. The British are penned up in the peninsula here, and there's some Royal Navy boats, and there's Castle Island, which is now connected to South Boston. And the Americans are surrounding Boston. The, so the original plan is that the British are going to go to Dorchester, which is an, essentially a, uh, un, a uh, no one's there. There's just pastures, and there's really no houses. There's no troops there, and it's sort of a... Uh, on no man's land. The British want to go south by boat and then circle up and take the American headquarters in Cambridge and then maybe take the other empty peninsula of Charlestown because Charlestown has a town, but at this point, the inhabitants figure there are between two armies, it's not a safe place, and so the town is now abandoned and it's a ghost town. However, the Americans get wind of this intelligence, get intelligence and they're aware of this plan, and they determine that they're going to preempt the British attack by doing one of their own. And so they take on June 16th, 1775, they take Breed's Hill and they fortify it. And that's actually the focus uh, that I want to give right now is because this is just uh, this past Friday was the uh, 241st anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. And um, so the British, or I'm sorry, the Americans, they fortify with the earthenwork the uh, Breed's Hill. And there's debate on why it's called Battle Bunker Hill versus Breed's Hill. It's sort of academic. The fact of the matter is, it's the highest hill closest to Boston. The Americans thought they could put some cannon on there and harass the British better by being closer. Ultimately, the uh, Americans continue to fortify as the British determine what to do. They move up their timetable, and then they decide to cross some troops to Charlestown and meet the uh, Americans who they, the British assume 
the Americans are going to disperse in front of them because they've never before had a pitched battle. Before Lexington and Concord, it was just ambushes along the way. Here, this is an open field. This is really the British forte on what they do. Meanwhile, some of the, of the Navy ships maneuver, and, uh, and I want to read you, as General Howe comes across, here's, here's what he uh, experiences. So, naval cannon shot sailed overhead as Howe stepped onto, or out of his longboat onto the beach at Charlestown Point. Eager to examine the field he expected to own by day's end, Howe and his General Pigeot hiked up the molten hill where his troop lines and artillery awaited. There Howe took in the view. On his left, so this is the left that he's seeing, on his left was the apparently, uh, apparently abandoned town of Charlestown, followed by the rise up to Breed's Hill and its colonial redoubt and earthen breastwork extension northeastward, which extended down the slope to a marsh protected by three fleshes and a sparse line of trees where also stood four silent American cannon. So the American basically, they tried to use their guns, but determined that they were not really uh, skilled at using them, so they abandoned them by this point. Then running east from this was the near, newly fortified rail fence. Beyond was Bunker Hill with the new construction underway. Howe was dismayed to see the Americans had fortified their left flank with this rail fence because it stretched all the way across his intended path but he was happy to see the secret way yet undiscovered by the rebels. And so the secret way was, became his path. And, and that secret way is this beach. So this is the rail fence, and it's literally just fences put together and stuffed with hay. And then Americans lined up behind it. This beach, however, is about eight to 10 feet below the battlefield, down a palisade. And it's a rocky beach, and it's fairly narrow. And, uh, and it's unprotected. So, the plan is to send the light infantry, these fast guys, ahead, and they're going to encircle and outflank the, uh, the Americans. Meanwhile, the rest of the troops are going to move in, but kind of stall outside of range. And then because of snipers in Charlestown, the uh, Royal Navy bombards the town and sets it ablaze, and it burns down. And then there's smoke across the battlefield to add to this. So, when the uh, troops are marching up the beach, they, before they get to start this march up the beach, actually, an uh, American colonel named uh, Stark, he is from New Hampshire, he determines, he realizes that this beach path is a vulnerability for the Americans. So he sends about a couple dozen troops down there of his guys, and they put together really quickly a rock wall less than knee high from rocks on this beach, and they call it the cobble fence, and they basically set up and try to, they're gonna repel about 10 companies of British, these are about 300 British soldiers and some of the best soldiers out there. So, uh, so basically, um, the British are marching up and they're gonna meet this uh, cobble fence defenders. And as they approach, the Americans fired. The 50 or so cobble fence defenders instantly disappeared in a thick plume of white smoke. Likely only half fired first. The others fired next as the first reloaded. Their musket balls formed a wall of lead that flung toward the helpless British, ripping into them and decimating their front rows, their bodies tumbling onto the beach and into the river. 
The next rows of British staggered as they struggled to maneuver over the carnage that had been their brothers in arms. But the New Hampshire men kept an almost incessant fire on them, mowing them down four at a time, rank by rank. Officers and privates fell alike, their blood mingling with the small tidal pools that had collected on the beach. The officers shouted and tried to push their men on, but British discipline failed. Without orders, some lead British blindly fired their muskets towards the white smoke that had replaced the cobble fence defenders. That's a fatal mistake. By awkwardly slowing to fire their muskets instead of charging ahead, the Redcoats lingered within the lethal range of the American musketry, which only allowed the Yankees to slaughter still more of them, causing British bodies to pile up as hurdles of carnage for those behind. All of this caused the column to compress on itself, the front ranks driven to a halt while the men in the back continued forward. The British officers somehow managed to drive the following companies forward in a feeble charge, but both momentum and initiative were lost. The unforgiving American musketry continued to wipe out the lead British soldiers until the column at last gave way and began to fall back. So now Howe is stuck with uh, uh, this feint that he's doing against the, uh, Br the American forces on the battlefield. He expected to hear cheering on the beach down below as they broke through, and then he expected to see them come up from behind the Americans and surround them. Now he has a decision to make. So he decides he's going to march forward, and as they get to within musketry range, he's going to charge forward. The British have bayonets. Pretty much all of them have bayonets, while the Americans essentially have none. That's not entirely true. There are some companies that do, but for the most part, the Americans have almost no bayonets. Now, it takes a couple seconds. I mean, you might be able to get three shots a minute out with your musket if you're good. So if you have a range of a musket, and these are not rifles, these are kind of like tubes with balls that kind of bounce around as they come out. If you set this musket on a, on a tripod and aim it at the target and fire it scientifically, you're going to get different shots every time. It's so random. So there's actually some logic in being in line formation because you can create a wall of lead and maybe hit some of your target, but the time it takes to reload and the range is at best, you know, accuracy, in terms of accuracy, the range is 50 feet or so, maybe 100 feet depending. And so if it takes you 20 to 30 seconds to reload, you can run across that path while they're reloading. And if you are the side that has the bayonets, you're probably going to see the other side dispersed in front of you because they have no way to defend themselves at close range. So the British in-line formation should have plowed ahead. And yes, some of those shots would have taken out some British soldiers, but most of the shots would probably have missed. And then they would have been within close range and the Americans likely would have dispersed having no bayonets. However, the Americans shoot at quite a bit of range. And at first, they're probably not doing devastating damage, but the British stop and they actually start firing back at range. And these are inaccurate weapons shooting at both sides, but with enough shots, you're gonna hit targets. And the Americans are behind earth and behind a rail fence, and the British are standing in the open. So it's just suicidal, really. And the front rows of the British just get decimated. And ultimately, they fall back in a retreat. So now, Howe knows that he can't defend on, or depend on his light infantry in the beach attack. His flanking maneuver failed. So he needs a new strategy. And he repositions the troops 
in column formation. So now you only have about four people in the front of each of these columns and they're going to plow forward and even if you do accurately hit some of these guys in the front you can't take out many because it's it's just too many coming. The column formation he does on the British left on the right he sets up a ruse and makes it look like he's going to do the same thing twice. As they move forward the column and the lines on the British right are essentially doing, kind of staying outside of musketry range. Meanwhile, the Americans are holding fire because they're now starting to run out of ammo, especially, especially in the redoubt here on Breed's Hill. And, uh, and I, I failed to mention earlier that Joseph Warren had come to the field and he's also in the redoubt on Breed's Hill. And he sort of rallies the troops. He's not the guy in charge but he is uh, there as sort of the cheerleader for the American side and it really improved morale for them. So as the uh, British columns move up, the warships, the Copse Hill Battery, and some of the guns on Molten Hill ceased fire as the British assault advanced. Once the British neared their forward artillery, these two stopped firing. And then the field was again silent, just the marching of boots and the swishing of grass except for the few drummers beating the march and the Charlestown fire still blazing nearby. The British drew near, but the Americans held their fire, waiting until the Redcoats were still closer, uncomfortably closer. Suddenly, all at once, the British left wing broke their stride and charged forward, rushing up towards the redoubt. On the British right, the front line comprised of grenadiers and light infantry charged forward and began a fate, firing at the rail fence from a safe distance. Simultaneously, the second line of British right wing suddenly maneuvered into a column and surged left. Led by Howe himself, they instantly charged leftward toward the redoubt's breastwork, passing the British field artillery. In an instant, almost the entire British assault had become a swarm of columns rushing towards the weakly defended redoubt and the breastwork. This surprised the redoubt defenders, but Prescott, one of the Americans there, and his men held their fire. Over at the rail fence, it was obvious that the position was no longer the objective, so its defenders immediately began to fire. And they began to fire at range, while the light infantry, these were the same ones that were battered and, and half of them killed on the beach, kind of stayed out of range and just kept firing back just to occupy the rail fence so that the rail fence could not augment the real attack now on the redoubt. The result is the Americans retreat and the reinforcement comes across and they pursue the British, the British pursue the Americans off the peninsula. Warren is killed in this redoubt attack at the end. We didn't know for sure for many decades, maybe centuries actually, how he died. There's stories that he was shot in the back. There were stories that he was giving dying speeches before he died. And then there were stories that he was shot in the face as he rallied the troops in one more volley on, into the oncoming British. Dr. Sam Foreman is the biographer of Dr. Joseph Warren. And he did a lot of research and I came across him when I was doing the same research and we sort of crossed paths and began sharing this information. And these Photographs are of Warren Skull. He was reinterred four times. The latest was in the 1850s when photography finally existed. And his, his nephew, a founder of Mass General Hospital, took these photographs. Unfortunately, 
forensics, it was kind of new. Photography was new, so nobody thought to put a ruler in the picture. So we didn't know for sure how the details were. But there is a blast hole entry wound here and a blast out the back of the skull. Dr. Foreman did some real forensics. He actually got some average orbital sizes to create a scale. And we figured out that this entry wound is approximately a half an inch in diameter. Now the brown vest, the musket that the British troops carried is three quarters of an inch diameter. So that is smaller than the, the soldier's musket, which means that it is likely a pistol. And a pistol would have been carried by an officer or an officer's servant. And we really don't know much about the servants. Some of them were soldiers that were basically promoted to be a servant. Most of these officers are noble. And some of the civilians, there's civilians that also served as a servant. We don't know much about them, but we know that they were, there were many on the field that day with the officers. The other thing is, because of the entry and exit wound, muzzle velocities at that time were very low, range was very low, which means this was a shot from close range to go through the skull. And so the stories that he gave a dying speech, very unlikely. However, it is, uh, it is likely that the stories that he did rally troops to give one more volley to oncoming Br British are true. And more importantly, he witnessed, he saw his assailant. That was probably the last thing he saw. The ultimate result of the Battle of Bunker Hill is essentially that the British are still penned up in Boston. However, they have lost a terrible amount of people. Of the 2,600 officers and soldiers that are sent with the initial assault force, not counting that reinforcement that came later, 41% are either killed or wounded. That's a massive loss for them. The Americans, it's hard to know how many they actually had. So the American mentality at the time was they came and went depending on their whims. It wasn't very organized. They needed a general from Virginia to sort of fix that problem. But uh, so there may have been about 3,000 troops total on the American side at any give, at, throughout the day, but at any given time, probably about 2,000. And of those, maybe 20% killed, wounded, and a few captured by the British. But the ultimate result was Yes, the uh, British achieved a little bit of elbow room, but it wasn't really, they weren't in a better situation as a result. So I consider the Battle of Bunker Hill as a leadership, basically a major change for leadership on both sides. So General Gage is ultimately fired. General Howe ultimately takes over. And Warren, the guy that's effectively the de facto leader of the revolution, dies in passes the baton to George Washington, who's en route, but doesn't arrive until after the Battle of Bunker Hill. So on both sides, there's a leadership change, and uh, it's really going to be Washington versus Howe for most of the rest of the war. Washington has to form these militia into a new Continental Army. He spends a lot of time and effort doing that throughout the rest of 1775. But to force the British from Boston, he needs guns, and he needs big guns. And he needs a lot of them. And he has a problem with gunpowder as well. And there's also a major British force in Canada. And that actually is frequently ignored in, in a lot of books. And personally, I knew nothing about a battles in Canada in the Revolution. But it turns out it's quite important. So the Continental Congress ultimately authorizes a new department 
of the army that's going to focus on Canada and keep those British troops occupied so that they cannot come down and aid the troops that are besieged in Boston. So this allows Washington to finally force the evacuation of Boston because he doesn't have to worry about this uh, reserve force in Canada. Benedict Arnold leads one pathway, one of these two prongs, through Maine, and then Richard Montgomery leads the other, and he's, he has to fight through a siege and then Montreal, but they ultimately meet up at Quebec. And this is Benedict Arnold long before he's a traitor. He actually becomes known as a hero after this Battle of Quebec City, and the Battle of Quebec City is pretty epic. It's the end of the year, December 31st, 1775, fought in a blizzard of... And, uh, and it's, it's pretty epic stuff. So just to give you a quick lay of the land, there's a lower town, which is sort of the, like the docks, and then there's the upper town, which is surrounded by a wall. And nobody has ever breached that wall. In the French and Indian War, the only way the, uh, the British could actually defeat the French that then occupied Quebec City was by goading them to come out of their fortified uh, city and fight them on the plains of Abraham, and then that's how the British won. So nobody has ever yet breached these walls, but Arnold thinks that he can do it. So as Arnold's men, he's and he's on one of multiple attacks on this uh, city. He goes through the lower town on the north side. As Arnold's men approach the lower town, they had on their left the northerly bend in the St. Lawrence River. Its bank was filled with a number of vessels beached to protect them as the river iced over. On their right was the palisade atop which stood the upper town's ramparts. The Americans slowly made their way near the lower town. The only sound was a whipping gales. Suddenly, the walls on the American right all erupted with immense musketry. Balls whizzed all around. Shots picked off Arnold's men one at a time, dropping men to the ground in agony and painting the snow red. The blizzard was so blinding that it made for an almost whiteout conditions. Unable to see their assailants, all Arnold's men could do was drive forward, popping off a few aimless shots at the walls as they did so. They come across some barricades. There's lots of street fighting in the Battle of Quebec City. And uh, essentially, ultimately, unfortunately, the Battle of Quebec City is lost on the American side. But the Americans then besiege Quebec. And the ultimate result of this campaign in Canada is that it's successful in keeping the British occupied long enough for Washington to force the evacuation of Boston. But the other, other element that Washington needs is guns. Fort Ticonderoga was taken in May 1775 by Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen, but nobody had yet brought the guns to Boston area. And so Colonel Henry Knox is the new artillery commander sent there. And the story goes that he went in December of 1775. It takes him a couple months to figure out the logistics. But they actually hire ox, oxen, and they put these guns on sleighs, and they drag them over the Berkshires and over frozen rivers. And they finally bring them to the Boston area in late February. And that's not true. So, so it turns out that, you know, there were opportunists just like, uh, you know, now there's plenty of opportunists then. Uh, there were no oxen on this noble train, as Knox called it. And it turns out the reason for this, there's a painting there. I went to Dorchester Heights where these guns ultimately were placed. And there's a plaque there with the oxen and such. And uh, the reason for this story is because 
Knox wrote to Washington saying, I expect that I will have this noble train of artillery carried by, I believe the number was 134 heads of oxen. And then he actually negotiated seriously with the guy, the local guy that had these oxen, and the guy was basically strong-arming him, and he wanted to take advantage of the situation. Well, you got these heavy guns, I got the oxen, what are you gonna do? You're gonna come to me, I got a monopoly. And so the price was ridiculous, and Knox broke off negotiations, and he hired horses instead. Now, it's certainly true that in a few specific cases over some hills in the Berkshires, um, that he was able to borrow an oxen from a local farm, but it was mostly horses that actually took the guns to the Boston area. And then with those guns, Washington puts them up on Dorchester Heights. William Howe, the British general, is debating and actually puts troops in boats to cross to Dorchester to attack the Americans. But then a, a gale or a nor'easter, depending on the source, some sort of major weather event intervenes, pushing the boats, beaching them on Castle Island, and then ultimately the British decide, okay, this isn't going to happen. It would have been a bloody battle, another bunker hill with perhaps 50% of the British killed, but, uh, but instead weather intervenes, and, uh, and finally the British decide they're going to evacuate Boston. So Canada is effective in delaying the British reinforcement from Canada. Washington does uh, finally force the British from Boston, and they actually leave on St. Patrick's Day, 1776. The would-be Battle of Dorchester Heights would have been on the anniversary of the Boston Massacre, March 5th, 1776. So it takes all the way to St. Patrick's Day for them to actually depart. The British do regroup in Nova Scotia, and then finally they uh, move their campaign to New York in mid-1776. New York is a logical location. Manhattan Island can easily be surrounded by the Royal Navy, and there's a lot of loyalists in uh, New York. And all this happened before independence, and so that's kind of the play on, um, when I was trying to get this published, some of the uh, publishers were saying, well, we're very interested in the stories before the war, but we really want to know about 1776 onwards. And, uh, and I had to tell some of these guys, like, one does not simply declare independence without a lot of things happening before that. And uh, those publishers still turned me down, but, um, but I was happy to find source books that... Uh... So, a final thought to leave you with. <laughs> so if you think we're divided today, I would argue that we've always been divided. For example, there's the Civil War, right? Captain America versus Iron Man. I'm on Team Captain America, I think. But, but there's the real Civil War. And then probably the biggest controversy that's waging, depending on where you are, Atlanta especially, the biggest controversy that's waging in some of the restaurants is uh, Coke versus Pepsi. <laughs> And then, uh, of course, in the revolution, there's the question of which side you would be on. And it's easy to think now, retrospectively, with our understanding of how the war went, that sure, I would be a patriot, right? Because I'm an American now, so I would have been a patriot then. But the reality is it depended on the province, which colony you were from, and, um, and it just... Uh, 
Uh, so in Massachusetts, maybe only 20% were loyalists. There was a large number that were pacifists, but maybe these were just, un, you know, they didn't want to vocalize which side they were really on. And, uh, and you can understand that because to be a revolutionary, you're basically risking your career, your finances, your house, to go up against the official government of the colony. And that's a pretty big obligation to make. So, and certainly in places like New York, especially in New York City, there were a lot more loyalists. But it's easy to question which side you'd be on now, and it certainly depends on which part of the war, if you're asking, you know, before Lexington and Concord, you're probably more prone to be a loyalist. If you're talking about later into the war, you may be more prone to be a, a patriot after some of these different things, atrocities on both sides, and, uh, and sort of the bullheadedness of parliament really trying to oppress the American side. But it's also interesting to think about, you know, this in the modern context. And there are, there are modern uh, people out there that are sort of calling themselves revolutionaries and, uh, you know, depends on the perspective and, uh, and the situation. But there, it's a, quite a commitment, the bottom line is, to be a revolutionary. And, and this divide that we have in America really goes back to the beginning. So with that, are there any questions?